This is Sit Rap on BFBS. Libya comes under the spotlight as MPs investigate the legalities of the campaign. Certs likely to fall soon, but there's still no sign of Gaddafi. Meanwhile, Cyprus's role in the conflict has come to an end. We look at the island's strategic significance and its future as a British base. And we'll hear about what's being done to win the battle against the persistent problem of pirates. Hello, I'm Matt Teal. MPs on the House of Commons Defence Select Committee have started investigating the campaign against Libya. Their first evidence session yesterday concentrated on the legal basis for military intervention with a host of key diplomats as witnesses. First to be questioned was Sir Mark Lyle Grant, the UK's permanent representative to the United Nations. Conservative MP Julian Brazier asked about the way the Security Council resolution authorising force had been implemented. In the light of subsequent actions and the fact that we took that wide-ranging uh, resolution extremely widely uh, to the edges of, of its possible interpretation. How do you think Russia and China in particular, the two veto carriers, uh, actually lived with our interpretation? I mean, what was their reaction? Well, there's clearly been some impact in the discussions on the Security Council since then in areas outside Libya. Um, as well as on the subsequent discussions that we have on, on Such Libya. As in Syria. And we saw that last week on Syria. And it was quite clear that the Russian and Chinese veto of quite a mild resolution uh, in the end on uh, Syria was justified by Russia and China that they did not want to start down a road that would end up with military authorizations, as in the Thank case you. of Libya. With questions being asked, at least in Moscow and Beijing, about the legal basis for the war, Labour MP Di Havard was worried about the possible impact on the individuals involved. We are a signatory to the International Criminal Court and our personnel involved, be civilians or military, have particular legal obligations. And we just want to be, I want to be very clear, that they are not left exposed by political expediency of decision making and the legality is really there. But that was rejected by Foreign Office legal counsellor Cathy Adams. I think on the legality, I don't think there's any serious issue about the, the, the fact that the Security Council has the power under Chapter 7 of the Charter to authorise the use of force, which it did in this case. As far as the targeting is concerned, that's actually a slightly separate issue because the, the legality of the operation is separate from the legality of how the operation is carried out, which is essentially what the ICC is looking at. Mm -hmm. It's certainly right. a very important issue, but um, I'm not MOD, obviously I can't speak to this, but I know that the, the process that they go through in terms of ensuring that the targeting is compatible with international humanitarian law is, is scrupulous. The Secretary of State and Service Chiefs are due to answer the inquiry's questions about the campaign itself in a fortnight's time. Well, I'm joined on the programme now by Professor Rosemary Hollis, who's a Middle East expert at City University, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Thank you to you both for being on the programme. Uh, Rosemary, let's start with you. Is this always going to be the case from now on? Military action followed by a lot of picking through red tape? I suppose the reason for doing it now and being concerned about this inquiry and the potential legal problems has more to do with future campaigns or choices of whether to intervene or not 
rather than whether prosecutions are going to result uh, or, or something like that. It, it looks like the choice of targets in the case of Libya were so carefully made that nobody's going to be taken to task over that. It's much more about the implications of what's possible in the future. In terms of what's happening in Libya now and the hunt for Colonel Gaddafi, are we still within our remits? I mean, uh, David Cameron in September when he was visiting Libya with Nicolas Sarkozy said that we will hunt him down, we will help you bring him to justice. Is that outside what was laid out by the UN when we started this campaign? Well, I think they could they could again argue that the violence against civilians was being perpetrated by the Gaddafi regime and that he declared war on sections of his own population and so going after him was an appropriate response. That having been said, we've seen in SIT the real problem when you're backing forces that are themselves endangering the lives of civilians. So it rather depends what it is that they intend to do to support the National Transitional Council and the various forces that have been opposed to Gaddafi in the remainder of the war. I guess in, in a war situation, situations change as well. Things move on. The taking of, uh, of, uh, of CERT is a very different situation to the taking of, of other cities in terms of how the forces embed themselves and the, and the sort of military might that is needed to, to unseat them, if you like. Well, there was some very clever manoeuvring behind the scenes in terms of training and preparing different elements of Gaddafi's Libyan opponents. And I'm not sure whether the inquiry is going to go into that. There was stuff happening on the ground, which was partisan, which is different from what NATO forces from the air targeted. Uh, Christopher Lee, let's bring you in on this point, the legality of war and specifically Libya. What's your view? One of the difficulties, and I think it's, it was emphasised by Cathy Adams that we heard the Foreign Office legal counsellor earlier in the programme, reminds me that a previous uh, colleague of hers, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, in a very similar position, actually resigned from the Foreign Office over the legality of the Iraq uh, operation. It is so important to get this right. Uh, it's the rules of engagement... If you say right, uh, as David Cameron did when he was in uh, Libya, we will hunt him down, i.e. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi, uh, that was not what United Nations Resolution 1973 was all about at all. It was protecting the people. Now, as Rosie says, you could turn around and say, well, you know, you get him, you stop the war, therefore the people are protected. And that's the wooliness of it. Then you get to the next stage, the International Criminal Court could turn around, not just say for uh, the NATO troops, but also the, the, uh, the, the new government troops, and they can say, you've committed crimes. Amnesty is saying that now that crimes have been committed and it could go to the criminal court. That is the nervousness. Professor Hollis, let's move away from the legality of what's happening in Libya to the practicality of what's happening in Libya. How important is the capture of Gaddafi, do you think? I think there will be pockets of resistance, if not worse, so long as he's on the run and can't be tracked down. And he's thought to be in the south of the country, whereas we know that... Uh, his, one of his sons may well have been in Sirte and may have been captured. We don't know where Saif al-Islam, the other key son, is. But he's as implicated as his father in declaring war on sections of their own population. And they have supporters. It's clear from what we're discovering now that Sirte has almost fallen 
to the anti-Gaddafi forces, that they were deprived of real information. Their only protector, as far as they were concerned, was Gaddafi. And in the south of the country, they're very isolated, the population there, and they're very close to other African countries. And the attitude towards what are seen as the sins of Gaddafi by the population in Tripoli and Benghazi is completely different. They they see him as their man. There were reports a few weeks ago that Gaddafi had been trying to contact the Algerian president to arrange uh, refuge. Would that seem likely? I know some of his family are there already, aren't they? His wife and, and three of his children, I think. Yes, and the, the Algerians are very unsettled by the NATO-backed or the NATO intervention because they don't like the precedent themselves. And they have regarded Gaddafi himself as more of an ally than a problem in their fight against Islamist extremists. So it's it's a bit murky there. However, I don't think the Algerian government would want to volunteer to be uh, in the limelight as the protector of Gaddafi then under pressure from the International Criminal Court and so on to hand him over to international justice. More likely, he can disappear across the border further south. Christopher? Um, he can disappear. It's a big area. He could be protected, for example, Rosie, couldn't he not, by the, the Tureg in the, in, in the south. Uh, mines immediately moved to Sabah, etc. Et but it's an interesting thing going on at the moment. Why is nobody talking publicly about Gaddafi. Is it A, electronic intelligence, etc.? They actually know where he is. They don't want to complicate it yet. That's the next stage of the operation. Uh, Gaddafi is the trophy that must be, must be won. And okay. must be won in a certain way. Uh, by meaning what? Well, ideally that he's captured by Libyans uh, who may not hand him over, actually. Uh, they've said they won't extradite anybody else. And were he to be captured, now that I think about it, by any uh, international forces who were on the ground, that's a problem because they're not supposed to be there. OK, well, we, um, we kind of have to think about moving on. But before we do, uh, Christopher, obviously this Libyan topic is one that we return to week after week after week. When will we start to not return to it, do you think, on SITREP? Oh, dead simple, when the, when the television cameras pull out. I mean, <laughs> think, think Iraq. Uh, think all the other scraps we've been in. I mean, think, for example, at the moment, if, if you think of Kosovo, there's a hell of a lot going on in Kosovo. Cameras out, nobody talks about it, but there's a, a, a tremendous difficulties going on between um, uh, Muslims and Serbs at the moment. And I think that is the problem. But the biggest thing that happens, and Rose is absolutely right, we, i.e. the so-called Western uh, uh, countries, must not capture Gaddafi. If they do... They've, they've got a huge problem. And once Gaddafi is captured, then the story goes on, but it will follow Gaddafi and no one else. OK, guys, uh, interesting stuff. Stay with us. Rosemary, particularly, stay with us. While we've got you and your expertise, we very much want to pick your brains on a couple of other topics. So stay with us for the time being. Still to come, Israel agrees to release more than a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the freedom of one Israeli soldier. And a victory for the Royal Navy, but can the problem of piracy be solved once and for all? 
The current involvement of Cyprus in supporting operations over Libya came to an end last week. British forces deployed to the island have provided surveillance aircraft and tanker refuelling for Operation Elamy. Sitrep's Kate Jabot is in Cyprus this week. She's been presenting a series of British forces news programmes all about the work of the 3,000 British personnel based there. Well, earlier I caught up with Kate and asked her to explain the island's strategic importance to the UK. Well, it's very important, Max. You just have to look at a map. It's bang in the middle of the eastern Mediterranean, halfway to Camp Bastion. And through history, it's been the right spot for the British to keep an eye on the Middle East. Case in point, Operation Elemy. In terms of defence estate, there's a lot invested here. It's seen as a base for short-term training, longer-term deployments, and, of course, there's the permanent presence of RAF Akrotiri. Earlier, I spoke to the commander of British Forces Cyprus, Air Vice Marshal Graham Stacey. He told me that recent events have underlined precisely what Cyprus does. I think it has been a, a useful reminder. Um, again, it, the people that know what we do um, are fully aware that 365 days a year there's a tremendous effort going on to support Afghanistan, uh, moving people, moving materiel, um, every soldier, sailor, airman, marine comes back through here on decompression, etc. Um, LME did bring us into the spotlight, um, but the really amazing thing was that um, we did it without missing a beat as well as doing Afghanistan, as well as having the Red Arrows training here, as well as having an amphibious task group training here, and as well as working up attack helicopters for Libya. So, and it all happened um, without any sense of, of abnormality at all. So, useful reminder of what Cyprus can bring. For us, it was business as usual. So, Kate, in this time of military austerity, how does the future look for Cyprus? Well, um, Air Vice Marshal Graham Stacey says it's looking good. You may remember that the Cyprus review team, which is examining just that, was launched earlier this year, headed by Lord Ashcroft. There is a strong argument to be made on the strategy front. So I asked Air Vice Marshal Stacey, does that override any concerns about cost? It must come as well as concerns about budget. I mean, we have to live within resources. Um, we are the first to look at and encourage all of my people to look at better ways of doing business. I think the strategic importance is understood and is taken. Um, I think there is very worthwhile questions about how best we deliver that operational excellence in this day and age. And aside of the work on the bases, it's important, of course, not to forget British troops are involved in the UN mission to patrol the buffer zone. Indeed, that's right, and they've been doing it for nearly 50 years now, but the future is interesting. The UN remains committed to maintaining a buffer zone between the Turkish and Greek Cypriot communities, but there is some optimism that we might be grinding towards a solution in this divided island. Talks between both the Greek Cypriot president and the Turkish Cypriot leader having recently resumed, though they take place against the backdrop of a deeply unpopular Greek Cypriot president at home and the continuing turmoil over EU integration. I have to say the feeling on the ground from people like AVM Stacey is that anything could still happen. If I was honest, I think the jury is out. Um, um, the leaders are engaged, but, but there's a lot of other things going on in the Republic um, and in uh, the North as well. Um, I think um, hopeful, um, but I wouldn't really say confident at this stage. Um, the next big test is the leaders will meet the UN Sec General in New York um, at the end of this month. Um, I, I'm not going to try and predict what's going to happen. Um, whatever does happen, 
British Forces Cyprus, the sovereign basis administration, will continue to deliver excellence for defence. Of course, any settlement a long way down the line could have implications for the UN presence on the island. But whatever's decided, everyone is adamant it won't mean the end of British Forces Cyprus. Why? Because the sovereign base areas were agreed upon by all sides, both Greek and Turkish, when Cyprus gained independence in 1960. And you can see Kate's interview with Air Vice Marshal Graham Stacey in full on tomorrow night's British Forces News. Christopher Lee, listening intently as ever. Let's look again at the Greece-Turkey question briefly. Bigger issues at play, a word we come back to very often on the programme. Yeah, uh, it's oil, it's oil, isn't it? Um, but just, just quickly picking up something Kate said, you know, the, the agreement in, in 1960, 14 years later, two sides in agreement? No, the Turks invaded uh, northern, uh, the northern part of the island. Listen, what's at stake here? Turkey wants to be a member of the EU and is not. They've got to get some resolution on Cyprus as well as human rights in Turkey itself before they'll become members of the EU. If that doesn't happen, then this is going to drag on. Second part of it, um, you'd think that both members of, of NATO, they could really sort it out. Well, that's what people said about Spain and Britain over Gibraltar, didn't they? Um, the other thing is that next year there's going to be EU summit, could take place in Cyprus, Turks will get mad. Latest thing, three weeks ago, oil exploration started off uh, off Cyprus. What happens? The Turks put their ships to sea and say, you may come into our economic zone. If you do, we'll do something about it. It is not the best atmosphere to get an agreement, is it? No, certainly not. Christopher, thank you. We're going to uh, move on on the programme now. Uh, the Palestinian group Hamas and Israel have agreed a prisoner swap deal whereby one Israeli soldier and approximately a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails will be released. 19-year-old Sergeant Khalid Shalit was captured just outside the Gaza Strip more than five years ago. Now 25 years old, his story has become a celebrated cause in Israel. Professor Rosemary Hollis from City University is still with us on the programme. Rosemary, this deal does seem very lopsided. Can you explain why Israel has agreed to release so many prisoners in return for just one of their own? It's fairly normal in prisoner exchanges in the Israeli case. For one reason... They arrest an awful lot of Palestinians. In fact, if you're a young Palestinian man between the ages of, say, 16 and 30, it's remarkable if you don't come to the attention of the Israeli authorities and that you don't spend some time in jail. However, uh, there are those who were locked up by the Israelis even before the Oslo process began for doing things that became uh, or at least for taking the instructions of Yasser Arafat, who then under the Oslo process became the president of the Palestinians and met frequently with his Israeli counterparts. So uh, there's, you have to understand the context to realize that the Israelis have a lot of bargaining chips here and they reserve them for moments like this. And the norm is that the Palestinians get quantity in return for what the Israelis regard as high quality. So why is the timing of this deal now so important? Uh, you could argue that Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, is playing two games here. One is he's reminding the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, who just went to the UN with a bid for recognition for Palestinian statehood, that the Palestinians are divided between the West Bank and Gaza, between the Fatah leadership of Abbas and Hamas, who control the Gaza Strip, and he's just done a deal with what in other terms the Israelis regard as their main Palestinian enemy. 
And the other thing that he could be doing is satisfying the public pressure inside Israel on this iconic issue as a way of rehabilitating himself or reconfiguring uh, the, the politics inside Israel in the aftermath of a couple of shaking experiences. One, a mass protest of middle classes in Tel Aviv especially, but also in Jerusalem and other towns against the cost of living and the government behavior, especially over private business and so on. So he's been under fire from a key section of the Israeli population and this will win him points. So, Christopher, Rosemary's laid out there uh, very um, uh, sort of sensibly why it's important and why it's happened now. Just in terms of the strategy, though, I want you to pick up on that one, because in, in the past 30 years, this is the statistic, Israel had released 7,000 various Arab prisoners in return for 16 of their own and more than 10 uh, bodies. Is this a policy that's sustainable when Palestinian militants openly say, well, this is a strategy we're going to continue to employ? We, we kidnap and we abduct Israeli soldiers. Yeah, it, it is sustainable because you do it. Uh, when there's an exchange, it's like any other agreement. It is, a, it is momentarily. It doesn't, it, it doesn't change things. It simply reflects the relationship between the two at the same time. We have to understand this is important to the United Kingdom. It's important to the United Kingdom's economy, uh, oil again. Uh, we are imp it's important to us politically. It's important to us military. Anybody who says we're not gonna, we don't get involved there, you know, 2003, look at all our defence uh, agreements in, within the region. Start to get some settlement or see to be part of helping to get some settlement, then your stock rises. It'll never rise that far, but it does rise. And that's why it's important to us. Well, Rosemary, I wanted to ask you the same question, really. Why should we care? Why is this important to us, in, in your opinion? I'm dubious, you know, that the, the mantra, there must be a two-state solution and the parties will eventually have to agree it and it's obvious to everyone and it's in British interests and European interests. I'm dubious that a two-state solution would actually bring an end to conflict. And if we had the time, we could look at what the situation is in Northern Ireland. Have we got an end to conflict and animosity or have we got conflict management? And the other concern that I have is that nobody can really envisage implementation of a two-state solution because of all the heavy lifting that would have to be done, getting settlers out of the West Bank to make a viable Palestinian state and so on. So we're looking at a situation where the outside players are saying all the right things but powerless to do anything to make it happen and the inside players are playing along with a conflict that just drags on interminably, a bit like Cyprus, because they fear the alternatives so, so basically th this deal does nothing to sort of reinvigorate a peace process that's been frozen Absolutely since not. what 2008 i'm afraid not no which is quite a depressing thought really uh, yes but i wonder how long we're going to carry on believing when when does somebody say the emperor has no clothes the two-state solution is actually further away now in terms of israeli public opinion and what the palestinians could ever settle for they, they have no cards left, the Palestinians. And to, to then cave in and accept what's principally on offer to them in any negotiation so far is to accept Bantustans, call them a state, and have their 
be emasculated in terms of Israeli security arrangements. Netanyahu said he must keep troops and a possession of the Jordan Valley, the border with Jordan, so the Palestinians in the West Bank would be completely surrounded, their airspace completely controlled by the Israelis. And the Gaza Strip, the Israelis pretend that they've let it go, but of course they control it in terms of a blockade and they can uh, take reprisal by bombardment for any transgression put at the store of the Hamas controllers. Okay, Professor. Professor Rosemary Hollis, thank you very much for joining us on the programme today. Earlier this week, British and US naval forces rescued an Italian ship that had been hijacked by Somali pirates. The 56,000-tonne bulk carrier Monte Cristo was hijacked 600 miles off the coast of Somalia on Monday. The Ministry of Defence said the pirates surrendered as a ship from the Royal Fleet Auxiliary and a US frigate approached. All 23 crew members from Italy, India and Ukraine were freed unhurt. A key element in the success of the operation was that the crew were able to maintain control of the ship's motors and steering from inside an armour-plated panic room on board, preventing the pirates from either controlling it or threatening their lives. But another, more traditional technique was used by the crew to allow them to be rescued. They threw a bottle overboard with a note saying they were safe and not under direct threat, clearing the way for a military operation to be launched. Well, Karen Jack is from Dryad Maritime Intelligence Services, who monitor the threat of piracy. She joins us on the programme. Thank you very much to you, Karen. Um, a good out, sort of outcome this time, but that's not always the case. How much of a problem is piracy and how much is it on the increase? Yes, I mean, on this occasion, uh, the company involved had obviously invested in the infrastructure and the security on board the vessel. Unfortunately, this is not something uh, that we always see. The commercial industry is known for being fairly parsimonious and has only really caught on in the last couple of years to the fact that piracy is not going away, uh, going away and actually it's a growing threat. I mean, it's one of the, the oldest crimes that we see globally. Um, but they've really got to start taking it seriously. And thankfully, this one had, and it was a good example at the start of the season. Um, and we're hoping uh, that many, many other shipping companies, as they're starting to, will, will engage with BMP4, which are regulations that they should start to implement, um, and that this will assist with military operations and, you know, deter the pirates from, from engaging in the first place. You mentioned the start of the season there. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, I mean, we have uh, a couple of piracy seasons. Basically, over the summer months, the southwest monsoon comes in, and the wave heights in the Indian Ocean, across the whole Indian Ocean, are actually too high for, uh, for, for pirates to leave the beaches in Somalia and go off to sea. Um, they generally use small skiffs um, as well as larger mother vessels, but in order to transfer across from one vessel to another, uh, they need to use a small craft. And if the wave heights are too high, they can't do it. So, so basically, from the months of sort of June to the end of September, we don't see much piracy activity. And, and then we see it come out again beginning of October, as it, as it just has. What's the cost of piracy, do you know? Uh, vast and the the I mean I can't give you a figure for that but the the scale of the ransoms has been increasing gradually over time and of course when the pirates see that they can ask for a very large rans ransom and then get it paid uh, they just keep asking for more and then of course that gets reinvested in piracy infrastructure and the problem just gets worse so um, you know as, as long as ransoms keep getting paid then then the price will continue to increase and of course it becomes a very lucrative business model that other people want to jump on the bandwagon for um, so you know sorting out ransoms in the first instance uh, is another 
a, a way that we can attack this problem. How should it be attacked? Talk us through some of the ways. We talk, obviously militarily, in this case, the, the one we heard earlier in the week, but also a lot of shipping companies, I guess, are, are using private um, forces to guard their property. Yeah, I mean, the military can only assist the commercial shipping industry if it will assist itself. And, and this is a message that we've been trying to spread. Um, you know, you wouldn't expect a policeman to stand outside the front of your house to protect it. Uh, the shipping industry is making an awful lot of money moving um, fuels and cargoes around the world. And therefore, they need to invest uh, in this themselves and take some responsibility for it. And then, you know, the military will come in to help if they have done everything that they possibly can do to help themselves. I mean, that's how I see that it should run. Um, there are laid down measures in BMP4, as I mentioned already, um, and conscientious ship owners are starting to invest in that quite heavily, um, and that's really good to see. Um, there are private maritime security, um, physical security companies out there, and sitting impartially as an intelligence provider, uh, we see the good, bad and ugly. And actually, there are some really, really good ones out there. Um, there are guys who are, you know, straight out of the forces. You know, they've come straight from the Royal Marines or from the Army. They're very, very well trained. They understand rules uh, for the use of force instead of rules of engagement. Um, you know, and these guys are out there. Their, their services are out there. And, and the commercial shipping companies are starting to buy into them. Um, but at the moment, what we're not seeing is, is a great engagement um, with our military uh, towards uh, this kind of complementary service. And I think that's something that perhaps could be invested in and improved. Uh, Christopher, talk about that relationship between the military uh, and the private companies. Uh, is enough being done? What's your take? Uh, one of the difficulties, for example, for the Royal Navy is that uh, is the rules of engagement. Also, how far they, can they stretch it? Uh, we had an incident a couple of months ago where they lifted a skiff with uh, pirates on board, took them on board, couldn't do much about it, um, gave them a good meal, um, filled them up with fuel and directed them back to Somalia. And then what do you do with them? Just supposing you do hold on to them. If you're French, for example, you might go off and you prosecute them, and that's been done. But there's nothing in the United Kingdom, Kingdom that, can, that, can, that can do that. Um, all you're there to do is not necessarily to prosecute, but is to prevent. And if you can protect ships, that's you've you've really done 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 the job. You're not a international court on this. So, so we're ending the program almost where we started it, talking about the leg the legalities of of conflicts, aren't we? We started talking about Libya. We're now talking about piracy. The problems are the same. It's litigation. Once you put a military force into any area, even a benign area in the world, it looks over its shoulder at its own rules of engagement, which can be updated every 12 hours, for example, but also the international rules and how it interprets them. Uh, it's a nervous part of the process of being a commander, and I think that's as far as they're ever going to go. Uh, which is, I was going to say, are we ever going to crack this or not? Probably not, then, really. Uh, well, I was uh, attacked by a pirate in the Straits of Malacca, and that was 30 years ago in a yacht I was sailing. Um, so it's been around for some time. OK, Christopher, thank you. Karen Jack as well from Dryad Maritime Intelligence Services. Thank you for joining us on the programme and to all our other guests as well. Tell us what you think of the programme by following us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP or you can email us at the usual address. Kate's back next week from us here, though. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This is SITREP on BFBS.